Welcome to Todd's World, the fusion of fiction and podcast. Thanks for joining us for our original audio fiction stories today. I'm Todd Allen, and today we have Insurrection Season 2, Episode 4, Message Delivered. Insurrection is a fictional history of America in our time, a battle to the death between Group Alamo the world's largest secret paramilitary force, and the deep state. New episodes drop every Monday, and the companion podcast, where Will and Carrie join me to delve into that week's episode, drops on Wednesdays. The companion podcast adds so much to the story, so don't miss it. All the episodes and companion podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, Supercast, or wherever you get podcasts. Fact, I've opened up the entire first season of Insurrection. So tell your friends and family about the show. Uh, I think we're being shadow banned and shadow censored almost everywhere uh, on the socials. So we need your help to grow the show. Uh, they apparently don't like the subject matter very much. So imagine. You can find us on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Todd's World 2023. Also on True Social at The Todd Allen Show. I post short clips of the latest episodes and podcasts so you can repost or send to your family and friends. Also check out toddsworld.net with all the cool insurrection and witness merchandise. That It's all original designs. Our other story is Witness. It's a fictional series about the end times. And the paperback for the first season of Witness is available right now on Amazon. So go to Amazon, look up Witness, Todd Allen, should pull right up and get your copy today. And click on the link and subscribe to the show if you haven't. We thank you so much to everyone who subscribes and supports this show. As Will likes to say, this is the most efficient introduction in the business. Wildly efficient. This is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, and events, even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The sole product of the author's vivid and innovative imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental and fictional. And as always, we never encourage or promote violence. We just enjoy it in Todd's world. Now for the fourth episode of the second season of Insurrection. Season 2, Episode 4, Message Delivered Once the divorce was final and the house was sold, Jim Murray bought a condo in Siesta Key and moved south for the bright Florida sunshine. He had put in his time serving and protecting, 
climbing the political ladder all the way up to director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. His time at the head of America's Federal Law Enforcement Agency was overshadowed by his last year in office. Due to Hillary Clinton's negligent handling of a few thousand classified emails and her equally negligent use of a hammer to destroy the hard drives of all the servers involved, Jim had been thrust into the spotlight of a presidential election. At the time, he made all the necessary gesticulations about the whole thing being a distraction and an unfortunate waste of precious bureau time, time that would be better spent chasing down America's domestic enemies. But despite his complaints, Jim found he rather enjoyed the attention. You don't get to be director of the FBI without adroit political savvy and at least a modicum of charm. Throw in a flexible moral compass and willingness to bend the law to fit the needs of a given situation, and the path to the top job became more and more attainable with each passing year. He understood the ways of the D.C. swamp, and he had learned to swim with ease among the gators. By the time it crossed his mind that he might have turned into one of the gators himself, he had been at it too long to care. After all, the governing law of the swamp was the same as everywhere else in life. Survival of the fittest. Eat or be eaten. And until he was finally shown the door by Donald Trump a year into his first term, Jim Murray was all about eating. He had done everything he could to shield Hillary Clinton from any real investigation into her trove of classified emails even brushing over the obvious assault and battery of the server hard drives. At the end of the day, while muttering a few stern words, he brushed it all under the rug and moved on. That didn't stop the left from wrapping him up in the blame game for Hillary's eventual loss to the orange reality TV star. But the Fuhrer died down quickly enough a few months later, when Jim laid the groundwork for a carefully planned coup and sprang the initial trap on the orange president. The Russia hoax was preposterous from the start, but the orange man was so bad, so scary to the left and the deep state, they were willing to believe anything. Luckily, so were the FISA court judges. And before he could say Jack Robinson, Jim Murray and the FBI were running an active, surveillance investigation on the current president of the United States of America. The Bureau was spying on Donald Trump and his advisors, and it was all legal. Jim Murray still smiled to himself when he thought about the audacity of the whole plot. Susie Rance, Obama's national security advisor, had greenlit the entire operation. Obama had been in the room, though he didn't say much, just a wink and a nod. But then, Jim Murray knew just what to do with a wink and a nod from the president, even if he was only a few hours from being a former president. They couldn't have done it without a willing press. But by that point in the American empire, the media had given up any pretense of real reporting. They were all in on the leftist agenda, little more than obedient lapdogs writing glowing articles about the perfect crease in Obama's pants. Jim shook himself out of his drunken reverie and found himself driving down the quiet streets of suburban D.C. He wasn't past the point of functioning drunk, but he wouldn't have wanted to blow in a breathalyzer. 
He couldn't really imagine that happening to himself. Such law enforcement rituals were primarily for the underclass, not former directors of the FBI. On the off chance he got stopped, he would flash his government ID. A surprised look of recognition would dawn on the young police officer's face, and Jim Murray would be sent on his way with a polite smile. Just one more fringe benefit to swamp life. He almost missed the curb as he made the final turn toward the apartment he still kept in town. Almost. Instead, he narrowly missed a light pole and bounced both of his passenger side tires up onto and then off of the rounded corner curb. The car's undercarriage clanked and rattled in a way that wasn't encouraging. But of more immediate concern to Murray, the half-full Miller Lite bottle he had been enjoying on his way home flipped out of the console cup holder and into his lap where cold beer splashed onto his pants before it made its final descent onto the floorboard where the rest of the Miller Lite poured out into a puddle on the floor mat. Jim Murray stopped in the middle of the road, took a deep breath, and sighed. God damn it, he said, brushing off his wet crotch. I can't believe I hit that damn curb again. His speech slurred around the edges as he picked up the now empty bottle, rolled down the window, and threw it out onto the grass by the sidewalk. Littering laws were for the peasants, too. America had a thriving two-tier justice system, and thank God for that. It was his fifth time hitting that damn curb since he'd leased the apartment two years earlier. He swore that damn thing wasn't engineered right. It stuck out into the road too far, especially at one in the morning on his way home from the bar. The former G-man rubbed his face, then rubbed his hands together briskly before once more taking hold of the wheel. All right, honey, he said, talking to the car. I can see home from here. Only a few hundred yards to go. And once more, the blue Ford Edge rolled forward into the night. From the sliding glass patio door in Jim Murray's living room, Damon Roberts watched outside as the vehicle stopped in the middle of the road, began moving again. He's on the move again, he said to the tall man with blonde hair, currently perusing the liquor cabinet. Clearly a Scotch guy. That's disappointing. Smitty replied. Caleb Smith picked up a bottle and looked at it closer. J.P. Weiser's Canadian Whiskey. Eighteen year. Not bad. It'll do in a pinch. And this is definitely a pinch, hombre. Damon turned from the glass door. He looked at the bottle in Smitty's hand and shook his head. He'll be stumbling in here any time. You think he's drunk? From the way he took that curb, I'd guess he's had more than a few. Probably has one open in the console currently, Damon replied. Well, Mr. Murray won't be needing this then, Smitty said, putting the bottle of J.P. Weiser's on the floor next to a black duffel bag, and I'm quite certain he won't be needing it after tonight. Damon side-eyed Smitty, and his mouth turned up in a half-smile. Former Director Murray's night is about to take a turn for the worse. Damon walked over to the door wall next to the closet. The door would swing toward him when Jim Murray walked into his humble abode, and that was just fine. Three more minutes passed while they waited for the former director to open the door. Smitty took down another bottle 
and was busy reading the label when the door finally rattled open and Jim Murray plowed into his apartment, head down, mumbling to himself. When he finally looked up, he saw Caleb Smith standing in his dining room, smiling, holding a bottle of liquor from his shelf. He opened his mouth to yell when the door closed behind him and the steel muzzle of an FN SCAR assault rifle poked into the small of his back. Welcome home, Director Murray, Smitty said. I wouldn't be too loud. My buddy behind you with the rifle in your back is very sensitive to loud noises. He's apt to get startled and put a hole in your liver. Jim Murray slowly turned to look at the man behind him. He was shorter than the man standing by the liquor cabinet, with a darker complexion. Swarthy was the word that drifted into Murray's alcohol-muddled mind. Then the swarthy man spoke. Why don't you head on over and take a seat on the couch, Damon said. Don't worry, this shouldn't take too long. Do you have any idea who I am? Murray growled. Damon just sighed. Why do they always say the same thing, Smitty? Smitty shrugged. I don't know. I swear we have the most boring evildoers in this country. No creativity, no humor. No wonder they drink so much and diddle little boys for fun. Murray visibly bristled at Smitty's comment and opened his mouth to argue when Damon pushed him in the back with his rifle. Couch, he said firmly. Jim Murray marched to the couch and plopped down, staring up at the intruders, his eyes a mixture of rage and condescension. I'm Jim Murray, but Damon interrupted him, handing him a small iPad. You have a call coming in, Jim Murray. Murray stared at the ringing tablet like he had never seen one before and Damon took it back, swiped to answer, and handed the iPad back to the former director again. The cellular connection took a second. Then an older man's face looked out of the screen at Murray and smiled. Jim Murray, former director of the FBI. My name is Eli Crane, the man in the screen said. What do you want with me, Eli Crane? Jim Murray nearly spat the words as he spoke. And why are there armed men holding guns to my head in my own home? Eli smiled again. You FBI guys, you just never get out of character, do you? It's that heaping bit of arrogance in the federal law enforcement community we could all do without. I'm sure you're aware of the attacks in recent days. The explosions, the kidnappings, the assassinations and all that nasty business with the cruise missiles dropping out of the sky on deep state government targets? Murray glared at the happy man in the screen. I suppose you're going to try to take credit for all those terrorist acts. Another smile. Eli was in fine spirits. He was glad to be home at the base for this particular mission, all thanks to the wonders of technology. I suppose I was. But the important thing for you to know is this war isn't going to stop. There will be no more rolling over by the American people, allowing the deep state to run roughshod over us. This is only the beginning. We will topple this corrupt government and reinstate a constitutional republic. Jim Murray snorted. You are going to topple the government of the United States of America. You and what army, Eli Crane? Don't you worry, Jim. 
We have the army part handled. It's the public uprising part I'm focused on just now. Unfortunately, you aren't going to be around to see the show. I have a message I need to send to someone, and your cold, lifeless body should do just fine. So thank you in advance for your service, Jim. It will be the perfect ending to an illustrious career. Murray's eyes widened. The peril of his situation finally pierced his thick hide of hollow arrogance. Jim Murray understood he was going to die. As comprehension crept over his face, Eli spoke again. You didn't think you could commit treason and lead a coup against a duly elected president and never face judgment for your sins, did you, Jim? Tears had formed in Murray's eyes as he heard the heavy footsteps of death closing in, and he began to whimper. I I, I didn't... I was just obeying orders. It, It wasn't my idea. Eli's eyes turned to cold, blank stones. Jim Murray, you are guilty of high treason against the President of the United States of America and the people of the great land he represented. And tonight, you will hang for your crimes. Goodbye, Jim. With that, the call ended, and the screen went dark. Beth looked down at her locks of hair scattered all over the dye-stained sink and the bathroom floor in her immediate vicinity. Her hair had always been lush and full, a beautiful light brown. She had never cut it shorter than shoulder length because she couldn't imagine not having it to toss and twirl in style. It felt as much a part of her as her arm or her nose, but of course the cutting was bloodless and unlike her arm or her nose, it would grow back. She wiped fresh tears from her eyes. Gray had gone to meet with her new cop friend, Ryan, to reassess the lay of the land in light of the last 36 hours. Beth looked at herself in the mirror and didn't recognize the young woman looking back at her. Gray had begun his tutorial in the art of disguise the day before. They had finally turned off the TV in the afternoon, taking a break from the wall-to-wall news coverage of the cruise missile attacks. Naturally, as a woman, the easiest way to significantly alter your appearance was to change your hair. She had known it before he said it. Even reeling in shock, her wandering mind had covered the area more than once on her long drive north to Michigan. When she tucked her hair up into a baseball hat to fool the cameras at the gas station, she had known already. She had seen enough spy thrillers over the years to have a basic grasp of the territory. But she hadn't given in to the admission until yesterday, when she had tucked her hair up into the same baseball cap before venturing into the small local drugstore and buying what she needed with cash. After Gray left to call, and maybe try to meet up with Ryan, whatever spy games the men were enjoying, she decided it was time to nut up and play her part in the spy games. She was crying before she ever walked into the bathroom. And when she finally stood in the bathroom in front of the small rectangular mirror with scissors in hand, she melted down and slumped to the floor for a minute or two. But then she shook her head and wiped her tears and found a place stronger and deeper within herself. She had taken a deep breath, then risen to her feet again. 
Beth faced the mirror and began the surgery with dry, hard eyes. She thought she had done a pretty decent job for a rookie. Moosed up and styled, her short, darker do looked good on her. Her big hazel eyes took over her face. She smiled at herself in the cabin bathroom mirror and told herself she looked pretty. But the tears had pushed up anyway, in spite of her resolve and the new place she had found within herself. Enough of that, Beth said to her mirror self. If you start crying over spilt milk, you're never going to stop. This entire screwed-up situation is nothing but spilt milk. Silver linings are a thing of the past for you, Beth dear. Beth dear. That had been one of her mom's names for her. She smiled at the thought of her mom. She didn't always, but that afternoon she did. She needed the good mom memories right then. If she gave herself enough mental rope, she might hang herself with it. So she tried to avoid that possibility. She focused on surviving and hiding, the one being central to the other in her life at the moment. If she let her mind go much farther afield, she was afraid she might never get it back, the previous morning being a case in point. She had awoken late. It was almost ten when she finally got up to face the day. They had finally rolled back into their cozy cabin in Baraga sometime between two and three in the morning after their conversation with Trooper Ryan. Ryan Nehan had made sure to point out it was Trooper when Beth had casually called him Officer among their drinks and toasts. Beth just smiled at the time and tucked it away. She would not forget again, and she would make sure he knew she hadn't forgotten. Beth smiled, thinking about Ryan Nehan. Although she knew they were playing at serious spy games, in which one or all of them might wind up dead, she kind of liked Trooper Ryan in spite of herself. Maybe part of it was the cop thing. The same with firefighters and soldiers. There was just something about a man you knew would risk his life for yours. For a woman, the safety and security they represented were undeniably sexy. That was especially true for Beth in her current circumstance. She was, without a doubt, the damsel in distress. But she thought there was more to it than that. He had kind eyes, and he wouldn't have done all that he did, or, in their case, didn't do, if there wasn't a deep goodness in him. He was funny, and a little older, but not old, and he wasn't hard on the eyes either. His jaw was strong and angular and he had broad shoulders. Beth really liked broad shoulders. Then she laughed at herself. Any port in a storm, right, Beth, dear? She said to herself. Her mother had definitely lived by that motto far too often. As soon as Gray looked at her, when she had walked out of the small bedroom, she knew something was wrong. She had closed her eyes and said, Oh my God, what now? We were attacked last night, Gray answered, shaking his head in disbelief. What do you mean? Who was attacked? Beth was still clearing the sleep fog from her brain. America. They're still sorting it out, but they're saying close to 200 cruise missiles dropped out of the sky last night on various government installations throughout the country, mostly on the East Coast, some on the West, a few scattered strikes here and there throughout the heartland, Gray said. He motioned to the tiny kitchen. There's coffee if you want some. 
Beth walked toward the coffee pot. Oh, good. Fresh coffee to take in another episode of The End of the World with. Gray chuckled. Only you could make me laugh this morning, he said. That's what you're keeping me alive for, Beth said as she plopped down in the other chair in what passed for a living area. She had on spandex workout shorts and an oversized hoodie, her hair tangled from sleep. On the TV, pictures of smoking rubble and destroyed buildings kept coming one after the other. The news anchors sounded like they hadn't slept much, their voices slightly hoarse. Any idea who did it? she asked. Grace shrugged. Could have been the Russians. We've been poking and prodding the bear over in Ukraine for more than two years, doing nearly everything we could to provoke World War III. China, maybe? There's been concern for some time that we could take a hit from some cruise missiles launched out of shipping containers. But the size and scale of the attack argue against the offshore idea. Plus, I checked with someone I know in military intelligence. And the general assumption in national intelligence circles is the launch sites were located within the interior of the country. Holy shit, Beth said over her coffee. Who could get cruise missiles into the U.S. to shoot them off? Without inside help from Americans, no one. But then, who could get an attack helicopter into Alabama to shoot down the former and future president of the United States? You think it was an inside job? Beth asked. Our own government blowing up their own buildings and people? Gray got up and began pacing. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. The idea of the deep state utilizing someone in the military to take out Trump, while it would be tough to pull off, it at least makes sense given how much they hated and feared Donald Trump. But why would the deep state attack government installations run largely by the deep state? That makes no sense at all. Beth saw Gray was baffled, and that fact unnerved her more than anything else. Gray was the answer man. When Gray didn't have the answers, it was a bad sign. Where was the closest strike to here? Chicago. The regional FBI headquarters. Also FBI headquarters in Detroit, and an IRS processing center in Ohio. Your refund might be delayed next year. You reckon? Beth asked, laughing in spite of herself. Gray smiled. They spent the morning watching the nonstop news coverage. Gray made breakfast and they ate together in front of the TV, watching the pictures of burning devastation flip across the screen. Later, afternoon, Beth asked Gray, is all this craziness good or bad for us? Another question without an answer. I honestly don't know, Beth. Obviously, a nationwide manhunt for the perpetrators would take some heat off us. But then, if the deep state wants you gone... They could wrap us in with the terrorists, put our faces on some playing cards, and make us famous. That would significantly increase the heat on us. Beth sighed. This just keeps getting better and better. Which just about summed up how she felt looking in the mirror at her new do. She had begun to go stir-crazy in the little cabin, without her phone and friends and life. But she couldn't go there. Too much mental rope again. She wasn't holding on by much as it was. She focused on her hair scattered about the bathroom, reeled back in the mental rope, 
and set her mind to cleaning up the bathroom before Gray returned. While she swept and sprayed and wiped, she thought some more about Trooper Ryan and ports and storms. Against all odds, she found herself smiling while she scrubbed the dye off the sink and wishing she had gone with Gray. The world might be falling down all around her, but Beth Deer didn't have the mental energy to solve her own problems, let alone the rest of the world's. So she spent that afternoon thinking about a certain state trooper's broad shoulders. As her mama would have said if she hadn't died raving mad in a hospital detox center, any port in a storm. Everyone everywhere is on high alert, Ryan said, sitting on a large rock overlooking a wide gorge with a twisting river at the bottom. Granted, I've only been doing this 14 years, but I've never seen anything like it. It feels like the entire federal government is completely on its heels. They want everyone looking for someone or something, but no one has any idea who or what. The FBI is issuing vague warnings about domestic right-wing extremists, but nothing actionable. It's like the missiles just fell out of the clear blue sky. Gray had brought a pre-roll with him, and he sat on another large rock smoking marijuana next to the state trooper in his Class A's, looking like he was ready to invade Poland. Ryan wasn't concerned about Gray's ganja. Pot was legal in Michigan, if not technically at a public scenic overlook, and both Ryan and Gray had substantially bigger fish to fry that afternoon. Besides, Ryan had his own vices. He looked down at the cigarette burning between his fingers. He usually only smoked when he drank, and he never smoked on duty. But desperate times called for desperate measures. And with all that had happened in the last two weeks, it was hard to imagine more desperate times than this. For Gray's part, he felt like the world had flipped upside down, and the pot helped him shift down a gear or two and leveled him out a little. He was drinking a beer, too. And though he was quite certain Trooper Nehan had never done so before, Ryan had a beer of his own in his hand, joining Gray and taking in the scenery. Anything else come through on Beth and I? Gray asked. No, nothing new on your front. No fresh bulletins, Ryan answered. How's Beth holding up? He had found himself thinking about Beth after their late night rendezvous at the always beautiful Loon Lake Resort. He was worried about her all the pressure she was under. But there was more to it than that. Rumblings beneath the surface of something else. But Ryan wasn't the most introspective of men, so he enjoyed the Beth thoughts for what they were and didn't delve much further. She's okay, Gray said. We worked on some disguise basics yesterday. I think she is cutting and dyeing her hair today. So the next time you see her, it'll be like a whole new person. Ryan nodded and took a drink of his beer. Looking forward to it, he said, and he found he was. Gray looked at Ryan closely. So you haven't heard anything about us, he asked again. Ryan shook his head and shrugged. Nary a word. To be fair, we are in the middle of a war, so even the deep state is a little preoccupied at the moment. Gray turned back to the gorge for another hit. True. I've been trying to decide if that's good or bad for Beth and I. Probably a little of both, I imagine. Ryan hit the cigarette still smoldering in his hand. Probably right. 
Short term, it probably helps you. It takes most of the immediate heat off. But it won't take them long to identify some homegrown mega-terrorist suspects. They'll make them up if they need to. Fabricate some juicy stories about them, then slap their mugs on some America's enemies' playing cards. And if I were the deep state, trying to cover up the assassination of the people's president, I'd make sure those same playing cards had you and Beth's faces on them, too. Gray sighed. Yeah, I would, too. That'll be fun. What's your plan? Are you going to keep moving around? Ryan asked. That's usually the drill. Don't stay in any one place too long. Don't give people any reasons to ask questions. Ryan nodded and took another drink. I figured. But if you were going to try to stay anywhere for a while, you could do worse than the UP in the winter. There aren't a lot of feds wandering around up here in the snow-covered northern wilderness. Gray turned to the state trooper he had just met a few days earlier. He didn't completely trust Ryan. Not yet, but he thought he might someday. He hadn't given much thought to the idea of staying for a while. Beth would probably prefer to head someplace warm to ride the winter out, he said. Ryan smiled. He pictured Beth in a bikini soaking up some island rays, her brown skin glistening with tanning oil, the curves of her body barely covered in the sun. But he kept the mental image to himself. The UP empties out in the winter, and with all the snow and cold, people generally keep to themselves up here. My aunt has a house closer to town, but still far enough out you won't be bothered by anyone. She lives in Florida year-round. I rent it out for her and keep an eye on the tenants, do any maintenance that needs to be done. Just so happens the last renter moved out a month ago, and I haven't found a replacement yet. Gray took a long drink finished his beer, and set the empty can down next to the rock. He looked sideways at the state trooper drinking a beer in his spiffy blue uniform. Well, that's fortuitous. Ryan took another drink of his own beer, then another drag off the cigarette. You settle down for the winter up here, come up with a good cover story. Maybe you retired from a nice sales job. Your daughter is working on a book for the winter. It's a small town. The grocery store and gas stations don't have a bunch of cameras watching you every time you come in. And if anyone asks questions, you have a state trooper for a landlord to vouch for you. You don't have any friends or family up here, so it makes sense you would develop a friendship with your only contact in town. Me. Trooper Ryan flashed a cheesy smile. Gray had fished another beer from the six-pack plastic ring and popped open the top. He took another hit off the joint and stared out over the gorge, pondering the idea. It's not the worst idea, he said finally, still looking out in the distance. Might be safer than trying to stay on the move with all the crazy shit going on in the country. Ryan nodded. The idea came to him on his drive home from their first meeting at the Loon Lake Resort. He liked both Gray and Beth, and he wanted to help them. He also liked the idea of spending the winter getting to know them, getting to know Beth. As much as he liked the thought of her baking in the sun in a bikini in Mexico, Mexico was a long, long way away. Ryan liked the idea of her cozied up in a blanket in front of a burning fireplace while the snow fell quietly outside even better. Ryan finished his cigarette and beer and stood up to stretch. 
I'm off tomorrow. Why don't you and Beth come into town? I'll show you the house and we can grab something to eat. Test out your new disguises. Gray looked up at the state trooper, smiled and nodded. Sounds like a plan. I'll talk to Beth about the idea. I'm sure she'll love the thought of being buried in ten-foot-high snowdrifts for five months. Beats being on the run from town to town for the winter, Ryan said. And it beats the hell out of spending the winter inside a cell in some CIA detention facility. Ryan pulled a card out of the right breast pocket of his shirt along with a pen. He wrote down the address. Meet at the house around three, he asked, handing the card to Gray. Gray smiled. Three it is. See you tomorrow, trooper. Stay safe out there hunting down all those right-wing mega terrorists. Ryan smiled back, and the two men shook hands. Then Ryan walked back to his patrol car and left Gray sitting on his rock. Gray turned his eyes back to the land falling away to the gorge with the creek winding along the bottom. He spent the next half hour sitting and smoking and drinking and reflecting on Trooper Ryan, on Beth, on falling missiles and dead presidents. Mostly he thought about spending the winter in the UP. And the more he rolled it over in his mind, the more he found he liked the idea. The morning sun dawned bright red and beautiful over the Atlantic, waking up the eastern seaboard of the United States of America. On the quiet streets of Aurora Highlands, Virginia, a suburb just outside Washington, D.C., families were waking up and preparing for their days of work or school ahead of them. Bennett Culley, director of the FBI's National Security Branch, whose purview included counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and weapons of mass destruction directorate, had come home finally at three in the morning to catch three or four hours of sleep and get a quick shower before heading back for another impossibly long day. With both the director and deputy director of the FBI having been killed in the recent attacks, President Cortez had tapped Bennett to be the interim head of the FBI, an unenviable position of power given the targeting of high-placed government officials in recent days. But Bennett was more than qualified, and given that his department would be the tip of the spear of the government's response to those attacks, he was the natural choice in a tumultuous time in the nation. His wife had gotten the kids ready for school, and the bus would be at the corner to pick them up in ten minutes. This was Bennett Cully's second attempt at a family, his career at the agency having chewed through his first one. He had an older son, but the two rarely spoke. His two younger children were in middle school, sixth and eighth grade respectively. At 7.25 a.m., Sophie, his 12-year-old daughter, walked out the front door into the morning sunshine. She was thinking about the math test they were having later that morning and hoping she had studied enough to get an A when her eyes noticed something hanging from the oak tree in the front yard. As she looked at the thing dangling from the tree, her eyes grew wide. She dropped her lunchbox on the sidewalk. Then Sophie found her voice through the terror and started to scream. Jim Murray's lifeless body hung from a large branch on the tree, his dead eyes staring coldly at the manicured green grass beneath his swaying feet. Beneath the American flag draped over his chest and shoulders, 
bloody bullet holes riddled his torso. A copy of the Declaration of Independence had been stapled through the flag to his chest, and the ends of the flag rippled slightly in the cool morning breeze. Bennett Cully tendered his resignation effective immediately later that morning to the President of the United States. He hated acquiescing to the terrorists, but he had his second attempt at a family to think about. And besides, as much as he liked to think of himself as a courageous federal law enforcement officer, the sound of his young daughter's screams, coupled with the sight of Jim Murray's flag-draped dead body swinging from the oak tree in his front lawn, had awakened something in Bennett Cully. A fear so raw and dark he found himself trembling in the early morning dew as he hugged his screaming daughter to his chest and tried to calm her. Whatever war had landed on his country's shores, the United States of America would have to fight it without Bennett Cully. In his last act of service to America, Jim Murray had sent the message loud and clear, and Bennett Cully had received it. And he wasn't alone. As word spread through the FBI rank and file, on top of the destruction rained down on FBI offices all over the country, more and more agents got the message, and the resignations and early retirements began piling up. And somewhere, beneath the cold red iron soil of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Eli Crane was smiling.